Welcome back to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. Now, by now, most of us are familiar with the toxic influence of diet culture. But what about wellness culture? Often it's responsible for us reaching for a standard of health that is both unrealistic and just completely unattainable. So how can we sort the harmful from the helpful in our pursuit of true well-being? Well, Christy Harrison is a journalist, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor. She's the author of The Wellness Trap, Breaking Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation and Dubious Diagnoses to Find Your True Well-Being. Christy, thank you so much for spending me the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ed. It's great to be here. Yeah, wonderful to chat. And so let's start at the top. Because like I said in my intro, I do think a lot of people now are kind of au fait with diet culture, but what's wellness culture? Yeah, so wellness culture really builds on diet culture, I think. Um, you know, so people who are familiar with diet culture may know my definition, which is sort of one working definition of it that um, I described in my first book, Anti-Diet, which is a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it with health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status, whether that's moral status, so- social status, health status, or all of the above, uh, demonizes certain foods and food groups while elevating others and oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health. And so those are all values that we see show up in various forms of, you know, diets that don't want to say they're diets, but, you know, have all these sort of pillars or some of them uh, maybe more than others. But wellness culture, I think, you know, basically incorporates these values wholesale and then adds several other major tenets of its own. Um, so it mm. it really denigrates conventional medicine, you know, quote unquote, Western medicine and idolizes alternative, integrative, functional, um, quote unquote, natural and holistic methods. And that can really lead to uh, a particular reverence for anything that's deemed as ancient or non-Western, even if that's not really true, right? So there's a lot of like cultural appropriation and fetishization that I think can happen um, under that umbrella. And we also see a lot of sort of emphasis on individual responsibility and, um, you know, making health and wellness something that people are individually responsible for as opposed to collectively. And, you know, there's this endless pursuit of self-optimization that is really encouraged, um, but also leads people to think, you know, if it's ancient, it's better. If it's natural, it's better. Um, You know, there's a lot of this language in wellness culture that I think denigrates conventional medicine and paints doctors as being sort of out to get you or not in your, you know, not having your best interest at heart. And that's really understandable, I think, as someone who has multiple chronic health conditions myself and has struggled in the conventional healthcare system to get the appropriate care. Um, there are a lot mm-hmm. of things that aren't really well understood or that have, you know, don't have great treatments in this day and age, you know, yet in conventional medicine. And so I think that leads people to feel really unserved. And, you know, there can be a real lack of empathy too from doctors in the conventional healthcare system. It's kind of hit and miss. And sometimes you can stumble on really empathy doctors, but I think if you have enough encounters with doctors who don't take your symptoms seriously or make you feel like it's all in your head, um, that creates this sort of vacuum that I think these alternative approaches come to fill, and they really capitalize on that feeling of being unserved and unheard. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, all those things you've just described sound very familiar for anybody who's spent any time on any social media platform, 100%. What's your own journey with wellness culture been like? 
Yeah. So my own journey was a winding one. I think like many people's, um, you know, I first developed my, I developed my first chronic illness when I was in my early twenties. And, um, that was sort of ironically the time in my life when I was the most obsessed with wellness, I was, Mm. you know, exercising really, really over-exercising, I now know, but very compulsively um, exercising. I was eating quote-unquote healthy. I was, you know, people sort of saw me as the picture of health, wanted to know what I was doing, um, but I was very restrictive in my diet. I was, you know, trying to cut calories and carbs and doing all these things that were really not good for me um, and were actually leading to, over time, led to binging. And it was, you know, the sort of classic restrict binge cycle that I see with Mm -hmm. so, so many people who attempt um, changes in their diet and to eat quote unquote healthy. So I would, you know, be this supposed picture of health, you know, during the day or for a couple of days and then be so hungry and so deprived of the foods I really wanted that I would end up binging and then, you know, would feel guilty and want to atone for that and restrict even harder and exercise even harder and the cycle would continue. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was during this process that I developed the the first of my chronic health problems, um, which, you know, at the time manifested in losing my period, having um, fatigue and foggy brain and, you know, difficulty concentrating. And these things are sort of nebulous um, symptoms that can be attributed to so many different things. And I now realize uh, mostly had to do with my lack of, you know, my, my disordered eating and my disordered relationship with physical activity. Um, but I also developed Hashimoto's thyroiditis and that runs in my family. It's an autoimmune condition and my mom has it and she had it probably un- undiagnosed when she was pregnant with me. And, you know, so there are a lot of reasons to think that I would maybe have developed that anyway, but I think that the timing of it was interesting. And I wonder whether potentially the disordered eating and overexercise helped to, you know, trigger it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know, the extreme fatigue I was feeling was was partly related to that. Um, and the missing periods may have been partly related to that. Although, you know, of course, once I got the right medication, I was on the right dosage and it had, enough time had passed and I still wasn't getting my period. It was like, okay, what else is going on? And, you know, doctors couldn't really figure it out. And because I was never, you know, I, I know now that I was weight suppressed for me, that I was um, very much at the low end or below the low end of my own weight range that's, you know, good for me and that my body wants Mm. to be at, but I was never, um, emaciated. I was never what doctors considered to be, um, terribly underweight. And so nobody really flagged my weight as a concern and therefore nobody really flagged my eating and exercise as a concern. And so it was like, Mm. yeah, we really don't know what's going on. Maybe it's just going to take a while for your period to come back and for these other symptoms to abate once, you know, the thyroid medicine's working, come back in six months and let's talk. And so in that void, I was like, okay, well, let me figure out what's really going on. Let me take matters into my own hands. You know, I'm a journalist by training. I that was my first career, and at the time, you know, I was a young journalist, kind of starting out, and had all this energy for research, mm-hmm. and was so curious about all of these, you know, health and nutrition and food because of what I was going through. And so that became those became my beats, and I was like focused on that sort of day and night, um, and did all this research to try to figure out what could be going on with me, and sort of ended up in, you know. what now feels very benign corners of the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. It was very fringe at the time, you know, sort of these 
um, alternative wellness spaces where people were suggesting that I had a gluten intolerance or that I um, needed to cut out more foods and maybe, you know, see a naturopath about elimination diets and things like that. Um, and I did cut out foods. I did try eliminating things. And I, you know, very much believed that gluten was the source of my ills, except that when I cut it out, it was like, I, I think I feel better. And for a while I thought I felt better. And then, you know, I felt worse again and my period didn't come back. And, you know, all these other things were happening. You know, I had no idea that the things I was doing in the name of quote unquote health were actually the things that were leading to these symptoms. And so I thought I needed to do it harder, do it more, cut out more processed foods, cut out gluten more stringently, maybe take out dairy, maybe take out some other things, you know, and um, just got more and more obsessive about it. And it was sort of a winding path out of that, you know, really low level uh, or really sort of the depths of my disordered eating um, through dating someone who was, you know, for lack of a better word, a foodie, um, and then starting to work at a food magazine as an editor and being surrounded by like food people who really celebrated the joy in food. And um, I still deal with a lot of kind of ups and downs in in my energy level and sort of how I feel, but it's like these minor waves now, you know, versus the mm. huge tidal ups and downs that I was experiencing before. Your story is so familiar to me. <laughs> it feels like you're telling me my story. Do you know, like, mm. I, and I'm sure when you speak to um, people about this, they say the same thing. And I'm sure for so many people listening, they'll be like, oh my gosh, that could be me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know obviously the um, Hashimoto's is incredibly serious and very detrimental, but even things like uh, IBS for me personally, when you are so keen to find a solution, you will land on anything and think okay this is the thing right Mm -hmm. and you keep going through that cycle and it's kind it's so similar to when you're trapped in that diet culture and you think okay this is the this is the diet this is the trick this is the exercise regime Mm -hmm. is it that um part of this idea of finding that ultimate fix that makes wellness culture so seductive Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a few things. I think it's like for people who are used to, you know, succeeding and figuring things out and getting things done in the world, it's kind of like, okay, I got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to figure this out. And, you know, we're not experts in everything, right? This is a point that I talk about in the book related to something that Tracy McMillan Cottom, the um, uh, the columnist talked talked about in one of her columns about you know this notion of um, feeling like we need to be experts in everything and you know that relates to like people thinking that they know about vaccine science and can you know outsmart the the, the experts on that or right this breakdown of like trust in experts and trust in institutions mm-hmm. makes us feel like we need to be experts in everything even in things that we aren't really trained in and so I think it can lead people who are otherwise you know really capable and smart and maybe have expertise in one area of life um, to be sort of seduced and sucked in by seeming expertise in areas where they don't have as much knowledge, right? And that that definitely has happened to me. It's happened to so many people I know who are sort of, you know, science-minded and generally want to follow the science. There's actually research, though, that shows people who have a broad trust in science 
um, actually are more likely to be duped by pseudoscience and fooled by, Why? you know, sort of pseudoscientific arguments that have like scientific references attached, even when those references are totally meaningless or don't, you know, they're to studies that don't really exist or something like that. But, you know, people who have this sort of broad trust in science will feel like, okay, that can, you know, I can trust this and this is like a firm basis for my um, you know, to to live my life or whatever. People who are actually more skeptical and ha- are more encouraged to think critically about science and not just have a broad trust in all science do better when it comes to um, being encountered by pseudoscience. And that's something that's that I learned, you know, much later in life, right? Actually, I think came across that study while researching this book, but um, sort of intuitively have stumbled into a much more critical approach to science over the years, just based on you know what I learned about weight science and um, the flaws and pitfalls with that. You know, through my research into diet mm-hmm. culture, um, also getting my master's in public health and learning about research methods and how to you know determine the quality of a study and kind of look past the abstract and things like that. But in my early years as a journalist, I was reporting on you know nutrition science and science and other areas of health, not really knowing how to read those critical nuances of studies, sometimes just reporting based on press releases. And I know so many journalists mm. do this, you know, that don't have expertise in science and how to read research. Um, and so we'll sort of uncritically report these incendiary claims, like whatever it is, you know, red meat will reduce your lifespan by X years or chocolate will, you know, increase your whatever, whatever, you know, it's like all of these, these sort of sensationalist headlines, which are then rewarded with, you know, by our attention economy, right, by like the likes, clicks and shares and eyeballs that those kinds of stories bring in. And so they reward the media outlets that do them. And so everybody does that. And then I think, you know, even smart people who, you know, because I'm talking about like myself as a journalist, and I think you have a background as a journalist too, right? So like a lot of us as journalists, I know I have a lot of journalist friends who fall into this camp too, who've sort of been, um, you know, seduced by these these types of studies and and headlines about studies and stuff. But then I think even people who are not journalists, who are like smart consumers of media and are going to media outlets they trust, read these kinds of headlines and are like, okay, well, you know, my gut health is really connected to everything. And this expert who's being interviewed in this story says that I have to cut out all of these foods for gut health and I have to add probiotics and I have to do all these things. And so I'm just going to do that, you know, because I... I trust the experts, right? Or um, in some cases, people might feel like, let me, you know, do a deep dive myself and like try to become an expert on these issues. And I think the problem is that the way social media is structured, the way like Google is structured, you know, once you show an interest in one thing, right, it's this attention economy issue again. Um, we're fed more of the same. We're fed more of what the algorithms think we're going to like. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we can easily get down these rabbit holes. And that's another aspect of wellness culture that I didn't touch on before, but that I that I usually mention, which is that like wellness culture really gives, you know, anecdotes and social media testimonials and like the the content on social media so much weight and and far more weight in many cases than sound scientific evidence and and doesn't really help people learn to tell the difference. You know, it's, um, I think wellness culture really incentivizes people to quote unquote, do your own research in this way that's going to almost inevitably lead to these sort of extreme, um, unscientifically supported, you know, pieces of misinformation in many cases that are, 
you know, sensational and do really well on social media and go viral, uh, there's, you know, a lot of evidence that the more viral or that the more misinformation something contains, the more viral it tends to go. Because misinformation, you know, algorithms really privilege um, novel content, content that provokes moral outrage and division and anger. And, you know, misinformation tends to hit all of those notes. Um, so I think those are some reasons why people get sucked in, even, even you know, thoughtful, smart people who might think of themselves as scientifically minded and critical consumers. Um, I think there's just a lot of pitfalls out there. And that's one of the reasons the the term, the wellness trap really spoke to me, you know, as, as a title. It's like, I think um, it is a trap that so many people who are, you know, you're not, it's not like you're... Um, gullible or not smart or not uneducated or something mm -hmm. for falling into these traps. These traps are everywhere. And it's just like, you can't always be aware that they're there until you're in one. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, like you say, you know, being a journalist and you think about yourself as a very critical thinker and somebody who looks at the facts and dissects the information and, you know, takes things um, with a pinch of salt. But damn, I've been sucked into so many of these things, like 100%. It's absolutely something that I have been convinced by and, um, you know, fallen into that toxic cycle of thinking, okay, this is the thing, this is the thing, this mm -hmm. is the thing, you know. And only now talking to you, I'm like, damn, this is exactly like you say, just like diet culture. It's so similar. It's um, so and similar. and the, other thing, the other thing that you talk about in the book is how, uh, and you've touched on this a little bit, but how wellness culture ties itself to beauty which mm. kind of makes it even more intoxicating. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, for sure. So I think there's this myth in, I mean, I think that wellness culture and beauty culture are very intertwined. Diet culture and mm. wellness culture are very intertwined. There's these Venn diagrams, right, of overlap between yeah. all of these things. And, you know, they have a lot of overlaps and, and sort of roots in, you know, white supremacy culture and misogyny and, you know, stuff that goes mm -hmm. back centuries, right? So it's, um, it's all really interconnected. Capitalism also is very interwoven in all of that. Um, and so I think the way that wellness culture sort of intersects with beauty culture, one of those ways is this notion that, you know, if you're well on the inside, that it's going to show on the outside in the form yeah. of adherence to cultural beauty standards, right? And so we see so much language in, you know, wellness industry messaging that's like, um, you'll glow from within if you do this. You're going to heal your, you know, your bloating, which is basically like, you know, adhere to cultural beauty standards by having a flat stomach. You'll heal your mm -hmm. skin, you know, any, any mm -hmm. acne or wrinkles or skin issues, you know, you're going to, you're going to look however many years younger, you're going to, um, you know, get rid of these quote unquote hormonal imbalances that are causing problems, you know, all of these things. Um, and it's sort of playing into people's desire to meet cultural beauty standards and this, this conditioned desire really that we have, I think, because beauty culture makes it out to be that, you know, beauty is the way to access um, connection and success and love and all of the things that we really deserve and desire, you know, like we want to have good relationships and love and find happiness and, you know, be able to support ourselves and our families and all of these things, right? And so I think all of this messaging that we've received over the years that conventional beauty standards are one ticket or the ticket in many cases to achieving all of those things, um, I think is really powerful. So how can we personally then move from a focus of wellness to a focus of well-being? And why is that more beneficial? 
Yeah, I think one one key point is to, you know, stop the individual responsibility rhetoric and to stop feeling guilty about our own choices and feeling like we have to personally be responsible for our health and the health of the planet and all of this stuff that, you know, that there's only so much we as individuals can do. And that a lot of this stuff honestly is just marketing anyway, you know, like so-called clean beauty has no, there's no actual definition of what clean is. There's no you know, regulated definition of what natural is. It's all a lot of hype in most cases. Um, and so to to recognize like, you know, companies are trying to sell us things. Well, the wellness industry is trying to sell us, sell us on this idea of, you know, natural health, natural beauty, whatever it is, right, that we can, you know, fix all of our problems by, you know, changing our diet, cutting certain things out, um, taking certain supplements, you know, that, that mm-hmm. if we just find the magic formula of oh, yeah. food and supplements and exercise that, you know, we're going to cure all of our ills, we're going to put our diseases into remission, like all of this stuff. It's just not helpful, you know? And so I think mm. um, first becoming aware of that and sort of recognizing like all of the ways that those beliefs have harmed us and um, maybe made us, you know, guilty and um, eat in a disordered way, move our bodies in a disordered way, like take supplements we don't need, um, move away from conventional healthcare when actually that would be helpful to us. Like, you know, really becoming aware of, of the harms that wellness culture has had on our lives and our mental and physical well-being, I think is, is mm. the first step. Um, and really starting to prioritize mental well-being and starting to think about you know, what, what is going to feel good to us and help reduce the guilt and shame and help us accept ourselves and take care of ourselves, even despite chronic conditions, you know, cause like mm. I said, I still live with all these chronic conditions, but I've given up the, the notion of remission and started to think about, um, a, like adaptation and how can I, yeah. you know, care for myself and to the best of my ability with these limitations that I have, knowing that all of our bodies will have limitations, all of our bodies will age. We're going to mm-hmm. all, you know, many people have disabilities now and we're all, if, if we live long enough, you know, going to develop disabilities as we age. And I think that's um, a part of life that requires some measure of acceptance and also sometimes grieving and, um, you know, going through a process of letting go of the notion that we can control everything in our lives. I think more generally, you know, thinking about health as a holistic, you know, truly holistic thing that encompasses social determinants of health and encompasses people's uh, social relationships and also social location in the world, right? Because we know that, um, you know, income level, education, experiences of racism and other forms of discrimination, like all of these things actually have more bearing on population level health outcomes than individual behaviors like food and exercise. So when you look at population health, there's actually a statistic that just blows a lot of people's minds, totally blew my mind when I first heard it, was like, you know, <clears throat> at the population level, 70% of health outcomes are attrib- of, of modifiable um, outcomes. So things, you know, other than genetics, things that we can control um, are attributable to, or uh, we can control at the individual or societal level, I should say, um, are attributable to social determinants like, you know, income, so, uh, uh, socioeconomic status, you know, experiences of discrimination, housing, um, access to medical care, access to clean food and water, et cetera. Um, only 30% are attributable to individual behaviors. And of 
you know, within that, only 10% of the whole pie is attributable to food and exercise combined, right? So 90% is stuff other than food and exercise, you know? And like, I think we think about it as the total reverse, right? We think about it as, you know, 90% is food and exercise. And if everybody just had, you know, good food, quote unquote, good food and, and, you know, good exercise that, we would solve all of our population health problems or whatever. And I think, you know, it's really missing the point that those sort of individual choices are so minor in comparison with these larger systemic issues. And even when it comes to individual health behaviors that people can control, you know, 20% of the, you know, of the 30% that is attributable to individual behaviors, more than, you know, two thirds of it is, is not related to food and exercise, right? It's things more like, you know, not smoking, safe sex practices, uh, getting enough sleep, you know, things like that that are um, have nothing to do with food and exercise. And so, yeah, I think just thinking about health and well-being in a, in a very different way that encompasses those social determinants, I think would really change a lot of people's relationships with, with their well-being. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that statistic is just mind boggling. You know, it's the complete opposite of what we've been led mm-hmm. to believe. And um, so one of the big things that you talk about is the this misinformation on social media and on the internet. Are there things that we can do personally uh, to kind of protect ourselves from this wellness culture BS? You know, you said that one of the red flags for you is that, you know, that phrase root mm-hmm. cause. Are there other things that we can be on the lookout to be like, oh, okay, probably should clear totally. of that. Stay clear of that. Totally. Yeah. There's lots of things we can we can be on the lookout for. I think um, anything that's promising to you know put your disease into remission is a huge red flag for me. Anything that is um, promising a detox or a cleanse, another huge red flag. Um, you know, mm. anything that's sort of like the secret to longevity or the thing doctors don't, you know, the secret do- doctors don't want you to know, right? <laughs> Using sort of conspiratorial <laughs> language like that. Um, the hidden cancer cure, yeah. you know, all of that is is huge red flags. But I think more generally too, if we can start to like pull back and look critically at information, um, I honestly think of, you know, probably 99% of the information is out there that's out there about health and wellness is going to be problematic, if not totally wrong. And so I approach it like that. I don't know. That's obviously just a statistic I made up, but you know, that's how I think of it. (laughs) And I think it has helped me approach things a lot more skeptically and critically where I just let it roll off. You know, I'm like, "Ah, that's probably BS. Mm -hmm. And if I look into it, you know, I can confirm that. Right. But Um, the Mm. SIFT method is something that I really love, uh, which was developed by a researcher named Mike Caulfield at the University of Washington. And it's, it stands for stop, Mm. identify the source, find better or other coverage and trace claims, quotes, and media back to their original context. And again, you know, this takes time and we don't all have the time to do that. And so I think, you know, if you like, if the sort of the earliest part of SIFT as being stop, I think that's, you know, we can just stop, right? We don't have to do any of the other stuff if we stop before we sort of take in the information, right? Yeah, no, that's incredibly helpful. And so, you know, because this uh, wellness culture works so similarly to diet culture, I know with intuitive eating, um, most of the uh, 
solution there to fight back against diet culture personally is just being more mindful and meeting our bodies where they're actually at rather than trying to force them into these um, unrealistic and you know unattainable ideals that diet culture uh, is trying to force on us because people want to make money out of our bodies. It strikes me that that's a very similar solution for wellness culture, which is a lot of the solution is kind of meeting our bodies where they're actually at and accepting them for what they are. You know, like you're saying, I'm not saying that you wouldn't look for a solution or medication or something to make these um, issues like particularly with the chronic health issues better, but coming at it from a place of acceptance and the fact that nobody's body is perfect and everybody has things that they're working through and are trying to deal with. Would you say that that's an accurate perception of this? Totally. Yeah. I think I think there's a lot of parallels between intuitive eating and sort of maybe into more intuitively relating to our bodies. I mean, it's tricky, mm-hmm. right? With like what is yeah. intuition and some people get, you know, yeah. get so disconnected from that intuition. But I think, um, you know, similarly, like letting go of all the rules and the guilt and mm-hmm. the ideas of what we're, what it's supposed to look like, you know, when it comes to food or when it comes mm-hmm. to health. Right. And, and yeah. thinking, you know, like in the case of IBS, right. Like thinking about, um, a bloated belly is something that's just, normal. That's just, that's that's okay. That's not something you need to deal with. You know, pain certainly is one thing, but the the look of bloating, right. And the way that maybe Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable in certain pants, you know, thinking about that as a matter of acceptance and working on accepting your belly for what it is and making accommodations, Mm. maybe buying pants that are more comfortable in the waist, not trying to squeeze into small clothes, you know, not Mm. trying to wear shapewear that, you know, makes it go away, um, actually giving yourself the the space for comfort around this issue, mm-hmm. right? Um, for me personally, and I know for many people I've worked with, that has been huge, like just having that level of yeah. acceptance for whatever chronic health conditions we're experiencing and saying like, yeah. how can I make accommodations for this and, and treat myself with kindness and compassion as I'm going through this, you know? Um, mm. That takes away, I think, a lot of the, the sort of tension and anxiety and stress and and guilt and anger and fear around the symptoms that can Mm. then let us relax and sort of like help our bodies actually feel better physically, you know? And I mm-hmm. think in yeah. in many cases, you know, certainly chronic illnesses and conditions will persist, um, but I think they become a lot more manageable when we stop holding ourselves to these extreme sort of unattainable standards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of value in kind of a, a disability justice lens on things where we think about, you know, disability as something that, that is, you know, doesn't need to go away or that we don't need to fix, that we don't need to um, eradicate or put into remission, but actually, you know, something that can be accepted and even celebrated and, you know, treated with respect. Um, and so, yeah, learning to to relate to our bodies with that kind of kindness and respect for whatever, you know, illnesses or disabilities or ways that our bodies don't meet up with cultural standards, I think is a really useful practice um, and mm. can be helpful no matter what you're dealing with. And then I think, you know, of course, there are physical symptoms and issues that people will 
need help with and and need support for. And I think finding healthcare providers who are empathetic and accommodating and can help you, um, you know, do your best to manage those conditions is really important too. And unfortunately, I think a lot of you know, there's a lot of empathy to be found in alternative medicine spaces and that, pe- you know, people mm-hmm. are desperate for empathy. And I think they're, they're actually, you know, alternative medicine providers often, often provide that. Um, the unfortunate yeah. thing is that what they're also providing is, you know, often uh, ineffective and in many cases harmful. And, you know, they're sort of promoting this idea that you need to just be working harder and cutting out more foods and taking more supplements and doing more kind of extreme things. Um, and so ultimately, I, I've talked to a lot of people and, you know, interviewed some people for the book who said that kind of the the care effect, right, that sort of sense of um, well-being that can come from having a provider who really takes you seriously and empathizes with you tends to wear off over time if the person is like, okay, well, this didn't work. Let me throw this other thing at you. Let me have you do this. Let me mm. have you, you know, do all of these additional extreme and restrictive things. And so I think for anyone who's listening to this who you know, has been down that road and has found like empathy and support from alternative providers, but also um, is starting to question like whether it's actually working and starting to feel like there's a lot of sort of personal responsibility messaging and guilt and shame around why they haven't put their disease or illness into remission yet. Um, I think it's helpful to sort of rethink that relationship and and to look for the same empathy and support that you found in that relationship elsewhere with a provider who actually is providing evidence-based medicine. And I know that can be a tall order and, you know, in, in places with national health care, there can be long waiting lists and you might not get to mm-hmm. choose. And in places with, you know, like the U.S., which is pretty much the only place I can think of with an entirely private, you know, healthcare system, almost <laughs> entirely private healthcare system, it's like, you know, you can choose, but there's a lot of limitations in, you know, access and affordability and stuff like that. Um, it, it's complicated, right? So I don't yeah. want to say that it's that it's easy. And I think that we all deserve that kind of empathetic, compassionate care that also is evidence-based, that also is going to give us things that are, you know, realistic and um, not kind of really out there on the fringes that could potentially harm us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know the the solution to that, right? I think, again, there's probably systemic solutions in there that need to happen, for giving people more access to that kind of quality care. Um, But I think to the extent that it's possible for you to look for it and to continue being persistent, um, I think that's a helpful thing to do. And I know for me, like, you know, I am someone with a lot of privilege that I was able to do that and to to kind of keep Mm. searching until I found good providers. But I know that they are out there and that it's possible to find them, you know, and I think that's been so helpful for me personally. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Christy. I really appreciate you spending the time today. This has been absolutely fascinating and incredibly helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ed. It's really lovely to talk with you. Christy Harrison is a journalist, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor. Her book is The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation and Dubious Diagnoses and Find Your True Wellbeing. I'll pop a link in the show notes because there is so much more to this. You're definitely going to want to check it out and I'll pop 
links to Christy and her work and where you can find her on social media uh, and some more information about this. So definitely go and check that out. If you're enjoying the series so far and you're new here, please make sure that you are following so you don't miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave me a review wherever you're listening. You know I love to read them and it really makes my day. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I will speak to you soon. I'm Ed Stott. I sincerely hope that's helpful.